Chapter Two of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Two: How Ellen Edrickson came out into the world. Never had the peaceful atmosphere of the old Cistercian house been so rudely ruffled. Never had there been insurrection so sudden, so short, and so successful. Yet the Abbot Bergersh was a man of too firm a grain to allow one bold outbreak to imperil the settled order of his great household. In a few hot and bitter words he compared their false brother's exit to the expulsion of our first parents from the garden. And more than hinted that unless a reformation occurred, some others of the community might find themselves in the same evil and perilous case. Having thus pointed the moral and reduced his flock to a fitting state of docility, he dismissed them once more to their labours and withdrew himself to his own private chamber, there to seek spiritual aid in the discharge of the duties of his high office. The abbot was still on his knees when a gentle tapping at the door of his cell broke in upon his horizons. Rising in no very good humour at the interruption, he gave the word to enter, but his look of impatience softened down into a pleasant and paternal smile as his eyes fell upon his visitor. He was a thin-faced, yellow-haired youth, rather above the middle size, comely and well-shapen, with straight, lithe figure and eager boyish features. His clear, pensive grey eyes and quick, delicate expression spoke of a nature which had unfolded far from the boisterous joys and sorrows of the world. Yet there was a set of the mouth and a prominence of the chin which relieved him of any trace of effeminacy. Impulsive he might be, enthusiastic, sensitive, with something sympathetic and adaptive in his disposition but an observer of nature's tokens would have confidently pledged himself that there was native firmness and strength underlying his gentle monk-bred ways. The youth was not clad in monastic garb, but in lay attire, though his jerkin, cloak, and hose were all of a sombre hue, as befitted one who dwelt in sacred precincts. A broad leather strap hanging from his shoulder supported a scrip or satchel such as travellers were wont to carry. In one hand he grasped a thick staff, pointed and shod with metal, while in the other he held his coif or bonnet, which bore in its front a broad pewter medal stamped with the image of Our Lady of Rocamador. "'Art ready, then, fair son,' said the abbot. "'This is indeed a day of comings and goings. It is strange that in one twelve hours the abbey should have cast off its foulest weed, and should now lose what we are fain to look upon as our choicest blossom. "'You speak too kindly, father,' the youth answered. "'If I had my will, I should never go forth, but should end my days here in Bewley. It hath been my home as far back as my mind can carry me, and it is a sore thing for me to have to leave it.' "'Life brings many a cross,' said the abbot gently. "'Who is without them? Your going forth is a grief to us as well as to yourself.' but there is no help. 
I had given my forward and sacred promise to your father, Edric the Franklin, that at the age of twenty you should be sent out into the world to see for yourself how you like the savour of it. Seat thee upon the settle, Alain, for you may need rest ere long. The youth sat down as directed, but reluctantly and with diffidence. The abbot stood by the narrow window, and his long black shadow fell slantwise across the rush-strewn floor. Twenty years ago,' he said, "'your father, the Franklin of Minstead, died, leaving to the abbey three hides of rich land in the hundred of Malwood, and leaving to us also his infant son, on condition that we should rear him until he came to man's estate. This he did partly because your mother was dead, and partly because your eldest brother, now Sockman of Minstead, had already given sign of that fierce and rude nature which would make him no fit companion for you. It was his desire and request, however, that you should not remain in the cloisters, but should, at a ripe age, return into the world. But father, interrupted the young man, it is surely true that I am already advanced several degrees in clerkship. Yes, fair son, but not so far as to bar you from the garb you now wear, or the life which you must now lead. You have been porter? Yes, father. Exorcist? Yes, father. Reader? Yes, father. Acolyte? Yes, father. But have sworn no vow of constancy or chastity? No, father. Then you are free to follow a worldly life. But let me hear, ere you start, what gifts you take away with you from Beaulieu. Some I already know. There is the playing of the citole and the rebeck. Our choir will be done without you. You carve, too. The youth's pale face flushed with the pride of the skilled workman. Yes, holy father, he answered. Thanks to good brother Bartholomew, I carve in wood and in ivory, and could do something also in silver and in bronze. From brother Francis I have learned to paint on vellum, on glass, and on metal, with the knowledge of those pigments and the essences which can preserve the colour against damp or a biting air. Brother Luke hath given me some skill in damask work, and in the enamelling of shrines, tabernacles, diptiches, and triptiches. For the rest I know a little of the making of covers, the cutting of precious stones, and the fashioning of instruments. "'A goodly list, truly!' cried the superior, with a smile. "'What clerk of Cambridge or Oxenford could say as much? "'But of thy reading hast not so much to show there, I fear.' "'No, father, it hath been slight enough. "'Yet, thanks to our good Chancellor, I am not wholly unlettered. "'I have read Ockham, Bradwardine, and other of the schoolmen, "'together with the learned Dunscotus and the book of the Holy Aquinas.' But of the things of this world, what have you gathered from your reading? From this high window you may catch a glimpse over the wooden point in the smoke of Bucklershard, or the mouth of the axe and the shining sea. Now, I pray you, Alan, if a man were to take a ship and spread sail across yonder waters, where might he hope to arrive? The youth pondered, and drew a plan amongst the rushes with the point of his staff. Holy Father, said he, he would come upon those parts of France which are held by the king's majesty. But if he tended to the south, he might reach Spain and the Barbary states. To his north would be Flanders, and the country of the Eastlanders, and of the Muscovites. True. And how if, after reaching the king's possessions, he still journeyed on to the eastward? He would then come 
upon that part of France which is still in dispute, and he might hope to reach the famous city of Avignon, where dwells our blessed father, the prop of Christendom. And then he would pass through the land of the Almains and the great Roman Empire, and so to the country of the Huns and the Lithuanian pagans, beyond which lies the great city of Constantine and the kingdoms of the unclean followers of Mahmud. And beyond that, fair son, beyond that is Jerusalem and the Holy Land, and the great river which hath its source in the Garden of Eden. And then? Nay, good father, I cannot tell. Methinks the end of the world is not far from there. Then we can still find something to teach thee, Alan, said the abbot pleasantly. Know that many strange nations lie betwixt there and the end of the world. There is the country of the Amazons, and the country of the dwarfs, and the country of the fair but evil women who slay with beholding, like the basilisk. Beyond that again is the kingdom of Prester John, and of the great Cham. These things I know for very sooth, for I had them from the pious Christian and valiant knight Sir John de Mandeville, who stopped twice at Bewley on his way to and from Southampton, and discoursed to us concerning what he had seen from the reader's desk in the refectory until there were many a good brother who got neither bit nor sup, so stricken were they by his strange tales. "'I would fain know, father,' asked the young man, "'what they may be at the end of the world.' "'There are some things,' replied the abbot gravely, "'into which it was never intended that we should inquire. "'But you have a long road before you. "'Whither will you first turn?' "'To my brothers at Minstead. "'If he be indeed an ungodly and violent man,' There is the more need that I should seek him out, and see whether I cannot turn him to better ways." The abbot shook his head. "'The Sockman of Minstead hath earned an evil name over the countryside,' he said. "'If you must go to him, see at least that he doth not turn you from the narrow path upon which you have learned to tread. But you are in God's keeping, and Godward should you ever look in danger and in trouble. Above all, shun the snares of women for they are ever set for the foolish feet of the young. Kneel down, my child, and take an old man's blessing." Alan Edrickson bent his head, while the abbot poured out his heartfelt supplication that heaven would watch over this young soul, now going forth into the darkness and danger of the world. It was no mere form for either of them. To them the outside life of mankind did indeed seem to be one of violence and of sin, beset with physical and still more with spiritual danger. Heaven, too, was very near to them in those days. God's direct agency was seen in the thunder and the rainbow, the whirlwind and the lightning. To the believer clouds of angels and confessors and martyrs, armies of the sainted and the saved, were ever stooping on their struggling brethren upon the earth raising, encouraging, and supporting them. It was then, with a lighter heart and a stouter courage, that the young man turned from the abbot's room, while the latter, following him to the stairhead, finally commended him to the protection of the holy Julian, patron of travellers. Underneath, in the porch of the abbey, the monks had gathered to give him a last godspeed. Many had brought some parting token by which he should remember them, there was Brother Bartholomew, with a crucifix of rare carved ivory, and Brother Luke, with a white-backed psalter adorned with golden bees, and Brother Francis, with the slaying of the innocents most daintily set forth upon vellum. 
All these were duly packed away deep in the traveller's scrip, and above them old pippin-faced brother Athanasius had placed a parcel of simnel bread and ramel cheese, with a small flask of the famous blue-sealed abbey wine. So, amid handshakings and laughings and blessings, Alan Edrickson turned his back upon Bewley. At the turn of the road he stopped and gazed back. There was the widespread building which he knew so well, the abbot's house, the long church, the cloisters with their line of arches, all bathed and mellowed in the evening sun. There too was the broad sweep of the river X, the old stone well, the canopied niche of the Virgin, and in the centre of all the cluster of white-robed figures who waved their hands to him. A sudden mist swam up before the young man's eyes, and he turned away upon his journey with a heavy heart and a choking throat. End of chapter 2